And a very good morning to you here on 2XX. And time now for the Fuzzy Logic Science Show with me, Rod. And I've got a couple of friends in the studio with me today. I've got Becca. Good morning, Becca. Hi, Rod. You enjoy the nice, brisk morning wind? Mm, it's a little chilly. <laughs> a chilly. And Tom. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. And we've got lots of really cool things for you today in the world of science here on Fuzzy Logic. We're bringing you some pretty cool interviews that we managed to pick up over the recent weeks. One of them is by a star guest, and I'm going to keep that as a surprise today, but looking forward to hearing from him. But first, let's kick off with a couple of This Day in Science. And today is the anniversary of a gent named Max Rubner, born on the 2nd of July, 1854, and he died at the young age of 27. And that's the same age that Jimi Hendrix and, wasn't it Jim Morrison of The Doors, both died at age 27? So he must have been a stellar character. He was, in fact a physiologist who showed the available energy content of food is the same whether the material is consumed organically or merely burned. So in other words, he, in a way, he's kind of showing that you burn food in order to get your energy. Mm-hmm. I believe that's how they do a number of caloric calculations on food these days. They burn it and see how much energy is released. Ah, yeah. And I think there's different measures of the way you can actually get the energy harnessed you can actually use the energy so a simple calorie count isn't quite as simple as we might have thought we did interview a gentleman named professor marche henneberg a few weeks back and he was talking about that a calorie isn't necessarily a calorie apparently when you consume one anyway max rubner found that no single type of food produced energy but the body variously made ready use of carbohydrates fats and proteins mm-hmm. and speaking of protein i do this yeah, i don't know i like like doing this i was in the one of those energy food shops you know the ones that sell the all the manufactured proteins the the body supplements mm-hmm. and the, no? you've been working out <laughs> you can tell <laughs> I've, I've got to be careful i unbutton the shirt before i because <laughs> I, i've a note of written material <laughs> anyway, I met this I'm guy. getting images of uh, the Simpsons and uh, it's a Scottish <laughs> character. Oh, the, uh, the gardener. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. But that's a visual thing. In, in, my, in my fantasy, that's what I look like. <laughs> Actually, I'm a skinny runt. But anyway, I met this guy named Sal and uh, he turns out he's, he, he's a pretty muff, muscly looking guy and uh, he was talking about protein and people say to him, uh, can I put on weight? Can I get fat because I eat too much protein? So I've got Sal. He said he's going to write me an Ask Fuzzy column because he's actually a university student. He does coaching for the Canberra Raiders and so on. He's, he's uh, seemed pretty knowledgeable on, on the subject. So we're going to do a Ask Fuzzy, which appears each Sunday in the Canberra Times, on uh, the benefits and otherwise of eating protein. All right. Are you, either of you vegetarian, by the way? I'm not. Pescatarian. Pescatarian. So you eat fish? Fish and chippocrit. <laughs> Swimming <laughs> vegetables. So, yeah. Yeah, I... I'm, I'm kind of partially... But, yeah, I do eat fish or seafood, but um, no red meat, no chicken. Yeah, yeah same. Mm. Um, same. Same, Okay. Yeah. A discovery on, on air. <laughs> yes. Do you, uh, have you had your blood tested for iron and yes. B12 and so on? Yeah, I try and keep regular checks with it. Um, but yeah, and across the board, it's pretty good. 
my iron levels. So I think it's, I wouldn't say it's myth that we sort of have lower levels of iron um, because there's certainly foods that you can directly supplement and meat is said to be, you know, the, the best source of it. But, yeah. And what about your B12? B12 seems to be okay, but I do get them regularly tested. So, yeah, oh, I mean, okay. every six months okay. or so. This is front of mind for me because I have recently got a blood test okay. back and my iron levels are normal. In fact, funnily enough, I had elevated iron the first time. That's interesting. Yeah, which is a bit weird. There's a condition called hemochromatosis. Okay. Blood colour something, hemochromatosis. And it's actually quite nasty, and the, but the treatment for it is to give blood. They take, they take uh, blood. That's a horrible cure. It's, it's, <laughs> well, it's not hard giving blood. It's just really inconvenient. So, uh, is it anyway. like a letting of some sort? I mean, what's the... Leeches. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe leeches. I don't know. I'm, I don't know. <laughs> but the, 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 the symptoms of, of hemochromatosis are things like general lethargy okay. and so on like that but it's not too good you don't want to do that mm-hmm. I, I don't think i have an issue with that but i do have low b12 mm-hmm. and b12 is a is a thing you've got to watch as a vegetarian mm-hmm. maybe a piscivore you you said but you're pescatarian pescatarian <laughs> oh, okay pescatarian yeah. vegetarian there's a few <laughs> so um, there's a coenzyme you need to absorb b12 and okay. a friend of mine has low B12. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have this coenzyme, then you can't absorb the B12. So you, you, you might be taking it in your diet or, uh, or a dietary supplement, but you can't use it. Without the coenzyme, it's... Yes. Yep. Yes. So, so what do you need to ensure that you have that coenzyme? Is there some other food source or is it... I don't, don't know. know. I haven't yeah, got neither. far enough okay. into that, but I've only just discovered my B12 deficiency. Mm. So... Uh, reading online about B12 there's all these nasty conditions like you know your nerves have the thing called a myelin sheath it's like the insulation on a copper wire Mm -hmm. if you don't have the B12 those things break down and it can be early onset dementia and uh, I don't know about multiple sclerosis but that's a myelin sheath thing and oh Mm. the list of things was dire kind of terrifying when you think (laughs) And I'm reading this song thinking, oh my god, I'm going to die. <laughs> but uh, I haven't had enough carrots. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, spinach. Yeah. Spinach is good, I think. I'm into kale at the moment. Kale? Kale. Yeah. It's a it's a I mean it's sort of described as a superfood, but it's very it's a it's a green leafy vegetable, kind of looks like cos lettuce. Um, but it's quite dense and yeah, I use it in juices. So it's actually a really good source of um yeah. It's an antioxidant, but yeah, I'll how, how do you spell it? It's K A L E. Kale. Yeah. K-A-L-E. Mm. And you can get it, is it easy to get? The lo- local farmer's market, I get it at the north side and south side um, farmer's markets. So, yeah, you buy it sort of in a bunch and it's, yeah. Does it taste good? It's... <laughs> oh, no, the look, hesitation look, says more than words can possibly. Yeah, that's... that's thanks, Tom. Listen, um, no, I have to report that uh, Becca's eyes I, <laughs> were just looking towards the city as she answered that question. I, you know, good is, a, is subjective. Good, it feels good. I don't know that it, it doesn't taste like maybe, you know, rock four cheese or something is, you know, it doesn't give you that instant gorgeous, but it feels... 
energetically, <laughs> energetically, it feels great. So you get a sense of satisfaction from eating it as opposed to a taste sensation? I'd say energy more than... And the satisfaction, yes, energy and satisfaction intertwined. <laughs> How's that for a... No, speak, speaking of satisfaction, if that's a clumsy segue, Becca, <laughs> uh, we've got a story here about stars mm. and a gentleman named Barachi mm-hmm. and a connection to Canberra in uh, in his yes. history with Mount Stromlo. What's what's that one? Well, apparently he was um, Italian-born and he played a significant role in um, Australian astronomy and he was born on February 25th, 1851 in Florence in Italy. But he obviously came to Australia and he helped to establish the Mount Stromlo Observatory. So the significance of his presence in um, Australia is, yeah, intertwined with the stars, I guess. So <laughs> I, I, I like that. And so what, what was his involvement with the astronomy? He was to do with the foundation of the observatory, right? Yes. Well, he was best known um, to the general public as the official weather forecaster um, for the colony and a role he, he didn't particularly like. Um, to him, it was sort of popular meteorology and it was of little practical value except as an amusement and um, of doubtful credit to science. I'm reading from the Sunday Canberra Times. Thank you much. <laughs> Thank you very much. And, yeah, so he was significant in setting up the um, observatory at Mount Stromlo, so as an astronomer. Now, he, he's important because... The name Barachi, people who know the suburb of Girilang will know there's a street called Barachi Crescent. And Girilang is the Aboriginal word for star. And all of the streets in Girilang have a star theme. So there's Smalley Circuit, and Smalley was an Australian astronomer. There's a Castor Place, but there's no Pollux for some strange reason. <laughs> there's a Forno, uh, Chikulba, that's C H U L C. U-B-A, Chagalaga, we used to call it, Chakulba, and I think that's the Aboriginal word for a particular star. Mm. And Becca, you, you came up with an interesting idea before we yeah. went on air about Were that. Were you inspired? I mean, it's sort of, once again, combining two wonderful cultures, which science kind of grounded, I guess, in the Western, you know, mindset, but also the Indigenous culture, as you explained, um, you know, indige- indigenous elders have names for these stars, and that would be a wonderful way of um, educating young people is to incorporate indigenous elders and bringing together the science mind and having some sort of event, you know, evening stargazing and bringing the two together. I think that would be a wonderful way to, a, to blend. A, yeah, a beautiful idea, Tom. Do you, do you know that there are people in various cities around the world? who never see the stars. Can you imagine that? Sounds quite horrible. Mm. We're we're blessed in this country having a lot of space and not quite as much pollution per head of population. Imagine being in somewhere like Tokyo or... Beijing. Beijing or even places in Europe where not necessarily the pollution in London, but they've got that constant high haze over the cities and all over the whole nation to to a large extent. And they don't get those wondrous... Don't get the clarity... Yeah, clarity of sky. And if you've been to the desert and you've just oh. been out in the open and looked up, and I, I don't know, do you, do you get the sense of, wow, that's just stunning stuff. There's the, the whole It's a pure comfort, stargazing. I know that sounds really cliche, but it is just to look at the stars 
is. Do you find yeah. it makes you feel small or perhaps in another way, paradoxically large when you look at the sky like that? What do you think, Tom? <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it, it's kind of, you know what's out there because the science and the astronomers and all of that tell you and then you see what you see and they seem removed from each other. It's just a good time. Does it, does it seem intimidating that there's that vast thing out there that it's, you know, we're so small and it's so large? Do you get that sort of that sense of being dwarfed by it, perhaps? I don't, because uh, nothing really changed once I started looking at them. Um, have, have you been to, either of you been to the Grand Canyon? No, unfortunately. I have. You have? Hmm. And maybe tell me, Tom, if you had this experience, but I, I stood on the rim of the Grand Canyon and the thing is just so big. It is really big. <laughs> and like, you know the stories and it's like, uh, two miles wide or in a mile mm. deep in the it's a mile uh, a mile deep yeah uh, which is what 1700 meters I think it's 10 miles wide okay oh. mm. really wide at the widest and you're standing on the edge of looking at this thing and you know intellectually it is big <laughs> but you can't kind of take it mm. no. absolutely you you just feel the sense of scale is hard to cope with in some way I had the uh, pleasure of walking to the bottom and back out again <laughs> and it's even once you get halfway down, that's when it's the most intense because you can look up and you see the rim so far away and you look down and you still can't see the bottom because there's actually an inner canyon. Um, so when you stand on the rim and look down, there's only certain spots where you can see all the way to the Colorado River at the bottom. But other than that, there's the inner canyon starts and it's almost as deep again. So wow. it's quite something. Uh, I didn't have the privilege of walking into it. It was the middle of summer when we were there. That would be horrible. Uh, yeah, uh, it wasn't too bad, but you, th there were warnings about don't be a hero. Because There's a lot of those. They've got pictures of young young men, especially in you know age 25 to 35, and they say this is the person who gets stuck in the canyon the most. We have to rescue. <laughs> the other funny thing that I saw at the edge of the Grand Canyon was there's a little visitors centre. It's not really a science thing, but it was interesting. On the door, there's a little you know those uh, circle with a cross through it type signs, and it says no guns in the shop. Wow! Please don't bring your guns. I wonder mm -hmm. if that's constitutionally valid. <laughs> I, Topical. I, I don't mm, know. Always is. And the little grey squirrels. People were feeding the squirrels mm -hmm. like nuts, and the things are like rats or pests. So they're running around the place. They're cute as. They are. I've got to say. <laughs> Interesting fact about the Grand Canyon. It was it was forged in only one million years. Seems to me something that big should take longer than that. But one, one million. million. That's that's what I read. Mm. One million years. And it's to do with the... Uh, the Colorado River. Yeah, and but the uh, glaciation. Wasn't it the retreat of the glaciers? I think it had dumped all this water, I think. Oh, I don't know. I, I was just struck by the number. I, I thought, and in my mind, that, that should be a 10 million or yeah. 30 or 100, I don't know, For longer that. than a million years. It seems small in geological terms. Wow. Well, well... I'm going to bring you a little interview now. I'm not going to announce who it is with yet at the moment. You're going to have to listen to this here on Fuzzy Logic with me, Rod, Becca and Tom. And this week I had the enormous privilege of catching up with this gentleman. And here he is. So we on Fuzzy Logic have got a pretty good eye for talent. And I've just spotted this gentleman who I think has got great potential. It gives me great pleasure to offer him what could be his big break moment in science. His name is Robin Williams. Now, Robin, clearly you're a very enthusiastic person about science. What is it about science that really gets you excited? 
The story never ends. You think you've got some wonderful insight to something and you think it's all wrapped and next minute an angle you've never thought of explodes and and the, the ideas continue and grow. So you're, you're excited by the ideas, about the surprises, about the unexpected? Yeah, pretty well. When I came to Australia in 1964, that was for £10. And I, I actually knew nobody in the Southern Hemisphere, but I read quite a bit. And, and I read a few bits and pieces about anthropology and the history of people in Australia. And I read that people, human beings, had been on the Australian continent for 4,000 years. <laughs> 4,000 years. And, of course, there, there were various legends about the fact that uh, there was terra nullius and people were just wandering around the place as if uh, they'd hardly touched it. Well, now, of course, um, I see archaeologists and they say, um, you know, we've been excavating on top of a mountain in Papua New Guinea where we found stone artefacts which are 50,000 years old. And, uh, you know, way back when I was starting actually to do science broadcasting 72 73 the big deal was mungo man or mungo woman of course that took it back to some like 40,000 or more years huge numbers of tens of thousands of years and the whole thing just became completely revolutionized now that's the kind of thing that i find unbelie- unbelievably exciting in uh, the work I do and the way you you keep seeing all these stories develop. And and like me, are you really excited and enthused by the characters that you meet? Yes. I've known many of them for a long, long time. And here at the Academy of Science, where we're meeting again for their annual fest, I'm seeing people I've known for over 40 years, and it's amazing seeing the grey hairs and the wrinkles where they used to be quite bouncy and, f- and, f- and fresh but their intellects haven't slowed down their, their, their brains keep going and I've made lots and lots of friends in the field So what's your take now on the current political and public debate in the realms where it's touched by science? Well science is always looking for continuing funding and whenever there's an span of austerity when people decide that they're terribly poor and as you know Australia is one of the richest countries in the world with an economy that keeps getting triple A's and so on nonetheless there will have to be cutbacks and nonetheless various programs will be cut and nonetheless tertiary education has had a problem uh, with a cut of over two billion dollars and this means that PhD students who were going to be nice and secure so that they could have something like a career, not anything like as well-paid as someone in business or someone in the IT trade like you, Uh, well, they're driving taxis, they're digging roads, they're looking for something else to do. Now, many of them might leave science, and that's perfectly fine if they want to do that, but I don't think they should be scratching around for something which is completely different from what they'd planned, and they are unfulfilled. So the politics, it seems to me is that science is not supported as it should be almost anywhere uh, in the United States at the moment. It's drastic what's happening, and it's against the interests of the nation itself. Well, what about the quality of debate where science is... Where science is intimately involved, such as climate change and peak oil and population growth and medical science and other forms of technology, 
How, what do you think about the quality of the debate you're seeing there? I think the quality of the debate is totally dire. I think it's tragic. In the first ever science show in August 1975, I completely forgotten this, one of the interviews was about climate change and warning that fossil fuel burning might affect the way that climate goes berserk more than if we had not exploited fossil fuels quite to such extent. You know, what I do quite straightforwardly is I go to the best scientists and find out what they have discovered and I report it. Simply that. I don't seek out someone who's going to be a stirrer. <laughs> I, I seek out the people who are publishing the best journals and found significant things that we can understand and which might be important. And most of them are saying we have a problem, and therefore I find it unfortunate when various political sides decide that they will ignore that problem or even distort it. And there are plenty of politicians, not least in the United States, again, who've said it's just a hoax, it's nonsense, and I think that's most unfortunate. Do you, do you find a tension between the need to just report the science and the facts and the way the science works and to put an opinion? You you find that that's something that you get you have to consciously pull away from? I don't pretend to have views different from the ones I actually hold. But listeners want to hear what the expert is saying and their interpretation. And it's unreasonable to imagine that a journalist who's cover, covering, what, 120 subjects at any one time might be anything other than a decent gossip merchant. You know, I can bring you the intellectual gossip, you know, Francis Crick once called it wonderful gossip. And so I can bring that to you. But if I try to massage the gossip so that it's uh, more to my liking, then eventually you'll be found out. And that's not good. The second thing is that most journalists being fairly oh, mean and twisted, I suppose, they want to bring, bring you something different. And so they will often seek out that which goes against the general grain. And um, so I, I will want to find something that makes you think, blimey, I didn't know that. That's very interesting. Wow, gosh. Um, I'll have to rethink where I was. And I'm co constantly doing that without being, if you like, a rat bag, without bringing you stuff that's, you know, just so plain weird, just to make a bit of a noise. But um, I try to keep out of it as much as I can, uh, simply because what people are telling me is just so bloody interesting. So given the, the magnitude of problems facing humanity now, we've got a burgeoning world population, declining world resources, are you optimistic? Does it leave you feeling optimistic or, or, or perhaps pessimistic about our future? I'm, I'm very optimistic on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays. Today's a Wednesday, <laughs> as we speak. And some of the other time, I'm pretty bleak, frankly. I'm nearly 70. My next birthday is 70. And so an awful lot of what might happen won't be for me to watch. And so in some ways I'm spared a direct involvement. But I find that uh, some of the squandering of our resources and some of the waste and some of the ways in which we're ignoring uh, the natural world and uh, its impact on us and the consequences to the natural world that we're changing 
that sort of thing is being done almost blind, almost as if uh, we don't care, and I find that extremely annoying. Well, Robin Williams, uh, thank you very much for your time today appearing on Fuzzy Logic, and uh, may it bring you great future success. (laughs) Well, I'm glad to have any talent I've got finally discovered. (laughs) You've got a big future, Robin. Thank you. Thanks, Robin. And that was a great pleasure to meet the man himself, Robin Williams, from the ABC Science Unit. And I was there because we were recording an Occam's Razor story, and you can hear that on the ABC Radio National on the 14th of July. That's a Sunday morning. Uh, Looking forward to hearing that myself, in fact. I think we might break to track now. Here's Zebra from the John Butler Trio here on 2XX. That was the John Butler Trio. This is 2XX. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic. Up next, uh, our own Rod did an interview with Dr. Phil Kilby from NICTA uh, about action buses. And particularly, he's interested in new ways to use action buses and integrating with bus and taxi services. So here is Dr. Phil Kilby. Okay, I'm here at the NICTA Tech Fest 2013. And I'm interviewing Dr. Phil Kilby. And have you ever had this problem where you want to get from A to B and the bus just doesn't line up with the way you want to be for the time you want to be? And Phil here, I think, has a bit of an idea as to how we can help solve this problem. Phil, what's, what's the nub of your solution? So the, the basic idea is that you don't have uh, buses running the full route. You only have buses running between certain hub locations maybe 8 or 10 in a city the size of Canberra. And then you have taxis operating as feeders into those hub nodes. So the big change is that you have to uh, book your travel before you leave home. A web app, a phone app, or a call center. If you don't like using technology, you can just talk to a human and book your, book your travel. But uh, what it will let you do is, um, within 10 minutes of you making that call, uh, the system will say, be at the bus stop that you are leaving from between the, in this 10-minute period. And a taxi will come and pick you up at your bus stop and take you to your nearest hub. And from there, you'll catch a high-speed bus to wherever it is that you're, you're going. And perhaps if that's not your final destination, then there's a taxi waiting at the other end with uh, your name on a, on a tablet, and you hop in that taxi, and it completes the journey for you. Uh, so that's a beautiful example. So, is uh, in fact, I experienced this getting to this event. So I caught a bus and I had to get off down the road about a kilometre away. And now I'm tired, hot and exhausted because I had to walk up the hill away from the bus. So is this about integrating forms of transport? It is. It's, it's using the most appropriate form of transport where it's needed. So that um, the, the important thing I guess about this is that we're planning on using this in off-peak periods. During the peak in, in Canberra, there really is enough demand for, to fill up m- most of your buses. 
but in the off-peak times, you've got a lot of buses running around empty. Uh, what this lets us do is just use the buses for that high-demand area, and then we use taxis um, when, when they're needed. And if we have a low-demand period, we can say to the taxis, we, we don't need you anymore. And then as the demand builds up again, we can bring in more taxis. So you've got the right fleet size at, at any given time. So this is about combining the flexibility and timing of a taxi with the bulk carrying capacity of a bus. Which, is that correct? Exactly right. Yeah, that's, that's it. Are, are there other forms of transport involved or is this simply taxis and buses? Uh, I guess the nice thing is that we're going to be having um, high frequency buses uh, on, the, on those trunk routes, maybe only waiting 10 or 15 minutes at most for, for your next trunk route. Uh, so it makes it very attractive to um, do a park and ride type thing where if, if you don't want to uh, uh, bother with the taxi or you, you have other things to do, you can drive your, your car or your bike to the hub and then have a nice high frequency service even on the weekend. So for the consumer, what are the economics of this? So taxis are a reasonably expensive way to travel. Is this going to cost me more? Uh, the plan at the moment is that this is all covered by a bus ticket. The, the, the taxi rides at front and end and the bus ride uh, all, in, all in the one price. Ah, okay. So is there any new technology involved? Am I just... How, how do I book the, uh, the ride? So you book the ride through a web app or a phone app or through the call centre, as, uh, as I said. Um, that's not particularly new technology. I guess uh, where the research is, and, and this is my particular interest, is in getting the optimal use out of your taxis. So uh, what we'd like is to see a multi-hire type taxi where um, uh, it knows where the three bookings are in your area and it's going to pick up a couple of people before it picks up you. You get in the taxi and you all go down to the, to the hub together um, and then the taxi waits and the next bus arrives and has some people who it then takes out into the suburb. But that routing and synchronisation and scheduling of, that, uh, of, of, of the taxi uh, system is a very complex problem, and, and that's where the smarts that I am particularly good at uh, can be applied. Ah, right. So this is more than just booking a taxi, then landing at a bus stop and picking up a bus. So there's some complicated modelling going on here to make this an efficient service. Is that right? Very much so, yeah. And, and really the, um, the efficiency of that taxi service, because uh, we, we'll be playing quite a lot for the, the, the taxis running around, the efficiency of that taxi service will potentially be the make or break for the, the economics of the, of the whole system. So it's something we have to get right. Ah, and so I'm visualising this complicated computer model. You've got a desktop computer with a whole bunch of data in it. What, what's the data in there and how are you analysing it? Okay, so what we're using at the moment, um, Action have been very kind in providing uh, data for uh, a few Saturdays uh, of, of last year. Um, and we're looking at the demand patterns uh, for, for those Saturdays. And so we're running the actual trips that people made um, using their MyWay cards. And this is the, the nice thing about this new MyWay system. Um, we, we're using anonymized data, of course. We have no idea who actually made the trips, but just simply that there was a trip made from A to B at this time um, on, on that Saturday. And now we can take that, that data and run that through our new system and say, OK, if that person now rang up and booked 10 minutes before they left, um, how would our system cope with that, with that level of demand? Ah, so, so this is an example of data mining, so-called. And do you use the term big data here? <laughs> um, not, on a, not on a Saturday in, in, <laughs> in Canberra. There's not enough data for it to be really big data. But, but if we start looking at... Uh, um, 
uh, an entire month's worth of, uh, of data and, and looking at uh, using this in other times of day, then yeah, we might even make it to big data. <laughs> so uh, I imagine that the output of all of this is some kind of economic model, some sort of operations research model, and coming out of this is some sort of costing model that shows the bean counters and the people who care about transport questions that the whole thing is going to work and that it will pay for itself. Is that is that correct? That's that's about the, the gist of it. So what we're doing with this this data, the real data, plus we'll get some synthetic data because we think that there's a high degree of, of hidden demand there where people aren't catching the buses because it's, it's just um, in, inconvenient or um, uh, they're not running at the right time for their particular demand. So let's look at a few scenarios that have higher demand, you know, 10% higher or 20% higher. But we're running our simulation to say how would the system cope with each of those levels of demand. We're also looking at different, uh, for instance, hub patterns. Do I need eight hubs or do I need ten hubs in, in Canberra? And how does that change the bus routes that I would use to, to service those hubs? So we'll, we'll analyse uh, a few of those scenarios, maybe pick out three scenarios and answer some, some key questions. Um, how much is it going to cost uh, is question number one. How much does the, the, the service improve? Uh, would those people who are riding there um, on those particular Saturdays, how much quicker would they have arrived at their destination? I hope it's quicker um, than, uh, under the new system than the old. How many taxis do we need? Um, how many buses do we need? Um, what's the, the ideal interval between the buses? Those sort of questions we can answer with our, with our simulation system and then take those scenarios to government, to bus tra- public transport users, to special interest groups. The um, elderly people might have a particular stake in, in making sure that this is a nice usable system and have a discussion about whether the model is actually able to fly. And if we can convince uh, everybody just how terrific the system is, maybe we'll get a, a live test sometime in the future. Oh, yeah, I do. I do love your enthusiasm, and and you're clearly passionate about this. So, are you hoping that we're going to run a trial at some stage? Um, that is my hope at the moment. Um, we, we're yet to the to talk to the government about uh, whether that's at all possible. But I, I guess first first priority for us is to uh, is to to prove the feasibility and and the uh, and keep the bean counters happy. Work out whether it's uh, a good idea. Uh, yes, one must appease the bean counters. So to what extent is this a technical problem and to what extent is it a, a one of social attitudes? So you're going to change people's behaviour by doing this. Do you see that as a challenge or is that something that the people down the track would have to deal with? Yeah, um, I guess one of the motivations for doing the project is um, uh, social equity. Because at the moment, if you uh, have a job uh, on, a, on a Saturday and you're forced to use uh, public transport, if it, unless it's really, really close, you're going to spend a lot of time waiting for uh, and, and riding on buses. And so uh, what, I, what I hope is that people um, who live in Canberra who have to rely on public transport will have a much easier time, a much more easy time, uh, if, if this new si- uh, system comes into effect. And also... Um, Having a good service on the weekend makes it just that bit more likely that uh, somebody might not have to buy a second car, that I can get away with just one car in the family. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if Johnny's got soccer in one place and somebody else is doing netball somewhere else, then maybe um, the bus becomes an option for one of those, one of those trips and I, I don't need a second car to, to do the weekend ferrying. Uh, well, well, Phil, I'm probably going to be asking for a taxi ride home, but of all the fundamental problems in running a city, transport is right at the core of the whole thing. So uh, thank you very much, Dr Phil Kilby. 
for talking to me today. It's been a pleasure. And that indeed was Dr Phil Kilby, who we met at the NICTA Research Labs. That's, in fact, the National ICT Research Labs. And they do all sorts of applied science things, trying to make some money out of the clever things that Australians do here on Fuzzy Logic. Of course, uh, don't forget to apply for... or apply, don't forget to subscribe to... Two double X because your funding and your assistance help keeps our valuable station running. And now here's another interview that we picked up, and this one was at the open day of Mount Stromlo. And Becca was very kind to bring us a story a short while ago about stars and the suburb named Girling and all the things that are star related in Girling. So here now is. Dr. Michael Hansen, who is a technical director at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, who was out here visiting for the anniversary of the 70-metre dish, the 40th anniversary, out at not Mount Stromlo, it's the Tidbin Billa, Tidbin Billa Deep Space, I can't never get that word right, the Deep Space Complex out there here in Canberra. So here's Dr. Michael Hansen. Okay, here we are standing under the the awe-inspiring silhouette of deep space. I can never get this right. <laughs> Would you like to say it? It's a DSS forty-three. It's the seventy-meter antenna. It's the it's the grand dam of the antennas in the DSN system. It's a beautiful piece of equipment, and I'm talking to Michael Hansen, who is from JPL NASA JPL Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is a mythical place for those of us who love this kind of thing. And uh, what brings you here today, uh, Michael? Well, here we we were here this week working with the uh, com- colleagues at G- Canberra. Um, we also work. We were meeting with our colleagues in Madrid previously and also our colleagues in Goldstone. And basically, we're working together for the colleagues to make progress between the um, stations here at Goldstone, Canberra, and Madrid. Basically, the DSN is the three sites. We work together. So if there's an issue with one site, the other site picks them up. And whatever we can't track in one station, we track in the other station. So um, astronomy is really a global endeavour, isn't it? That you're bringing together the work of all these different countries, Spain, and now we've got the, um, the SKA going on. Uh, are the sort of things that you're talking about uh, like long baseline uh, observations? Is that one of the things we're doing? Well, that's one of the things. It's MSLs are recent success. The camera was, was the first intended to pick it up, which is fantastic. The seven meter right here. And um, there's other projects coming up where we're, we're going to Pluto. We're going to uh, out of the solar system. And we're also looking at moving an asteroid into uh, around the near the moon so there's a lot of fun things going on moving an asteroid yeah that sounds like no do you need to enlist the services of bruce willis to do that yes <laughs> yes yes we, we have him on call <laughs> <laughs> what so what exactly does that one entail what's the what, what's the mission involved well basically they're going to move an asteroid out of its orbit and basically move it to a new orbit just with the technology, we can actually move an asteroid. Well, is it going to push it, or basically, how? It's it basically it's going to push it. What? So it's going to like nose up to this thing and and, oh, and shove it, or, or what? How, I, how don't, I don't know about that. <laughs> basically, think of if you could think of like putting a rope around it and moving it. Oh, so it's going to be like dragging it. Yes. Ah. So it's awesome stuff. 
Now, you mentioned MSL, and that, of course, is the Mars Space Laboratory, the Curiosity yeah. rover, or a rover that's now on, the, on Mars. It's on Mars now. It's uh, starting its long journey. It's been going on for a few months, as you know, and it's going to be going on for, more, uh, for a few years, hopefully. But basically, it's on its way to the building blocks of Mars so that it can determine basically what happened in the past. And, you know, it looks like Mars was habitable at one time, so perhaps maybe it can be habitable again. Do you, do you get the feeling when you look up at these things and just go, uh, the, the enormous scale and the distances and what they're actually doing and just think, wow? Yes, I think wow all the time. It's why I, I worked at Northrop Grumman for years and I wanted to come to JPL, so I developed the opportunity to do that. It's really exciting because it's something you can get a passion about. And if you have a passion about it, it makes it a lot easier to get up in the morning because you also with your kids so you can explain it to them. We're doing something exciting. Uh, it's enormously exciting as someone who watches from the outside. I just love watching these things. Um, it must be pretty challenging as well. What are the main challenges you have to deal with? Well, the main challenges are basically you've got different time zones. If you're trying to work together, it's, you know, we're, I guess, 17 hours apart from the U.S., and then in the U.S., we're nine hours different from Madrid. So you're trying to all work together on that. And when somebody says something, you have to understand, take into account uh, what nation they're from so that you're trying to explain it so that they understand it. It's working together. And do you have the same problem with lag to the instruments themselves? Because these things are a long way away, well, it aren't takes they? a long way away. And, you know, it could take basically hours to get the information back. But it's... Uh, it's just a fantastic fellowship between what we have in Canberra and Madrid and Goldstone. But really, it's a bunch of great people here, and it's wonderful to work with them. Oh, and that's a great note on which to say thank you very much, Michael. Thank you for coming to Canberra, and uh, it's been wonderful to talk to you just now. Thanks, Rod. Enjoy it. And yes, and that was us out at the Tidbinbilla Tracking Station. I won't attempt to say again the name of Deep Space Station, whatever it was. <laughs> uh, yes, Michael Hansen, and he was a director, or is a director, at the uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory out here to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the 70-metre dish at Tidbinbilla. And speaking of celebrations, here's a friend of, of the station, uh, a friend, in fact, of Fuzzy Logic. G'day, I'm Dr. Carl Kulitsky. Now, you might know me from TV shows like Quantum, Sunrise, Sleep Geeks, radio shows like Triple J, Up All Night on the BBC, books like Science is Golden, Never Mind the Bullocks, Dinosaurs Aren't Dead, and of course, I recommend that you get your science from me, but when you can't, or in addition, tune into the fabulous Fuzzy Logic Science Show on Community Radio 2XX, 98.3 FM, Sundays, 11.30. Remember, the universe depends on it. Uh, that was Dr. Carl. Yes, what a character. I grabbed that uh, little promo for him, and guess where we were standing when I recorded it? We we're at the bottom of the noisy, echoey stairwell at the uh, Boiler Room uh, Lecture Theatre out at the University of Canberra when he came out for a talk one day. All right. What, what a character. And uh, i got to say that while he's on air, he's conscious consciously constantly rummaging around in his bag he's got his ipad going he's looking at twitter he's looking at, at wikipedia and yet he does manage to maintain this really constant high velocity and <laughs> amazing encyclopedic knowledge of everything scientific and a real uh, a real advocate for science and what, what a character 
So you're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX. Time for a bit of retro music. Let there be drums. Sandy Nelson and these guys with lots of big, noisy drums making lots of noise. Definitely a bit of retro music. I can remember that from my childhood, and we would bop all around the room. There's something really primal about drum rhythms, like boom, ba da boom, boom. You know, did, did, <laughs> does that really appeal to you, or is that just, I don't know, too out there for you guys? No, I'm on the same page with drums. Yeah, yeah. I, I play them, so it appeals to me. Yeah, my husband plays them. Yep. Oh, drums <laughs> and taiko drums. The Japanese drums. If you've ever seen the them playing, mm. it's, it's martial Very arts. Impressive. And I've watched these guys and this drum, and it's made out of a bit of Tasmanian stringy bark, a cross section of a stringy bark tree, and it's as, it's as wide as I am tall. Mm. So it's about a one mm. and a half, two meter wide drum, and they've got this drumstick. It's like a baseball bat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they do this stylized motion where they bring it, the bat yeah. around the back of their head and then they go, whoopa! They hit this thing. Oh, energetic. <laughs> Fabulous. Yeah. Fabulous stuff. And speaking of energetic, to make new elements, uh, Becca, yeah. we need lots of energy and we need uh, particle accelerators and stuff like oh, yeah. that. Yes. What have we got? A This Day in Science item here. Yes. Nils Gabriel Sefström. Please correct me if I'm wrong. He was a Swedish chemist and he discovered the element vanadium. 
and he examined that iron ore after a mine manager had pointed out an interesting test and he was told if a batch was treated with hydrochloric acid and a black powder appeared then the iron would be brittle so he found this was not always true and for sometimes a black powder appeared from iron that was not brittle so by analysis of the powder, although it was similar to chromium or uranium, he realised it was a new element. And Sefstrom named it vanadium after a Norse goddess. So it's an interesting... And that's, that's pretty relevant for today, for the readers of our Ask Fuzzy column in the Sunday Canberra Times, because um, Jared wrote us a, a story about new elements being discovered, and they're still managing to generate new types of element, which is, so we're up to 118, 119 or something in the periodic table, I think. So that's pretty cool. And uh, there, so check out the Canberra Times and the Ask Fuzzy column. And if you've got any questions you want an expert answer to, or perhaps one that I might write, Send it to askfuzzy at zoho.com and we'll get you a, a story into the Canberra Times. Speaking of being in the Canberra Times, I wonder if this character ever has been Tom. I don't know what that segue was meant to be, but leaping koalas. <laughs> tell, tell us about leaping koalas. Tom. All right. Um, in Australia, we're fortunate to have a number of instantly recognisable endemic animals, and most Australians are familiar with koalas. Uh, many Canberrans may have even been on trips out to Tidbin Billa trying to spot koalas. I know I have. Um, if you have done such a thing, you'll know that usually it's not so much looking for movement that will help you find them, more the lack thereof. The modern koala tends to plant itself in a fork <laughs> of a tree and just munch on gum leaves as long as it can. Bless them. Bless them. But it wasn't always this way. Uh, the recent discovery of a largely intact skull has brought to attention an another ancient koala. We'll get back to that in a moment. But it's a much smaller skull with big eye sockets, uh, which suggests it perhaps lived at n uh, got around at night, foraging at night. And the smaller skull, uh, paleontologists who discover it have theorized that it may have leapt from branch to branch looking for fruit. And uh, so a, a fruit eater and a vegetarian? Exactly. They didn't always just eat gum trees. Um, and this one, it was found in far northwest Queensland. And from, and from the time period, there was a lot of rainforest there. So lots of tropical fruits. And I don't know how these paleontologists managed to paint such a great picture of these, these lifestyles. Because I'd see a skull and, you know, I'd see a skull. But. The lesser known monkey koala. Well, in fact, this one, they've given it a name, a rather nice name, Lito Koala Dick Smithi, <laughs> named after, of course, the famous adventurer and philanthropist Dick Smith, and uh, it's been described in the latest edition of the Journal of Systematic Paleontology. Uh, they theorize it would have been about one-third of the size of living koalas and weighed about three to four kilos, with also those large eyes. Uh, how did they know, I wonder, whether how, how it leapt from tree to tree? I mean... Uh, and it, they just had its skull, so it must be a pretty muscular little thing uh, and uh, limber, lithe. I know a three kilo leaping koala <laughs> is a pretty scary prospect, if you ask me. But it just got tired after thousands of years and came to a. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I wonder whether it had a B twelve vitamin deficiency. I doubt it. Well. It was leaping. <laughs> <laughs> had good good eyesight too. Is B twelve the? No, I don't know what I'm saying now. But um, it, it, this discovery brings to the brings the number of known extinct koala species to eighteen, 
but today only one species is still alive so it has a lot of relatives and yeah it's quite sad isn't the poor little koala the habitat has been fragmented and i remember down at jarvis bay there was uh, developments going on down there and when they fragment a habitat they cut off one bit of the habitat from another bit and there might be a little neck or a little corridor where the animals can move from one place to another you know it's all very well to say you can box them into this little area like hmm. a like they're in sort of zoo pen but the ecology of the animal doesn't work that way these things are often mobile they have to you know well <laughs> they may not leap but they still do move sometimes <laughs> they move to move well if you have a population that's cut off from the the, the neighboring populations then you get inbreeding and they're not you, you mm. lose the resilience that they should have and uh, it's all it's all very very bad so, so Becca, uh, today's another anniversary, and this one of the... It's the British sturgeon. So in 2004, a 2.75-metre sturgeon weighing 120 kilos. Now, I just discovered it was a fish, <laughs> which... Uh, you try and picture that, um, in the Swansea Bay off the coast of Wales by Robert Davies. And sturgeons are extremely rare in British waters, apparently. So this catch was interesting. But by a statute dating back to King Edward II um, of the 14th century, the fish had to be offered to the Crown if caught in Britain. So when Buckingham Palace told him he could dispose of it as he saw fit, he auctioned at Plymouth Fish Market for £700, but the local police confiscated it as a protected species under British law. So eventually the fish was donated as a specimen for the collection at the Natural History Museum in London. So in other parts of the world where sturgeon are caught, their eggs are sold as an extravagant food. Caviar. Well... Uh, I, I can't imagine eating caviar and knowing that I've killed a fish like that. I mean, what a magnificent, magnificent specimen. I wonder yeah. if a two-metre sturgeon has bigger caviar than a regular sturgeon. Oh, I don't know much about the biology of no. sturgeons. Anyway, it's uh, time now to wrap up the Fuzzy Logic Science Show for today and say a huge thank you to our two friends today. Rebecca, good on you, Rebecca. Great to have your company. Lovely to be here. Thanks, Rod. And Tom. Thanks for having me. Uh, good on you, mate. And look, uh, we've got a big event coming up as part of National Science Week. Fuzzy Logic meets the cyborgs. Yes, we are doing a panel. We have top flight experts from around Australia. The rise of cyborgs and post-human beings. Stay tuned for announcements on that. It's going to be a big, big deal. I'm really excited. Catch you later.